and just introduce Ben and say, let's give him a warm welcome back to the Carmel campus. Good girl, Jen. You are learning never to do anything Jerry Neville tells you to. Jerry's a good guy, but uh, he will still steer you in the wrong direction sometimes, sometimes. Well, Jen's right. This is week three uh, of our series, My Big Fat Mouth. Who has figured out over the course of the last couple of weeks, they've got a big fat mouth. My hand is in the air, uh, not just to, to illustrate, but because that's what I've realized too, as we talked in week one about complaining. And, uh, you know, we come into these things and maybe we think, uh, man, that's not me. And then you hear the message and the Holy Spirit starts to work, right? And he starts to highlight things. And then last week we talked about gossip. And uh, so I, I don't think I, oh, okay, yeah, I got to work on that a little bit too. And so just some really good stuff. I hope you've been recognizing some patterns that maybe you didn't even realize were there and that you have been open to what the Spirit wants to do in your heart to transform you to be more and more like Jesus. I love the point last week that everything we say needs to be true, but not everything that's true needs to be said, right? Did you catch that last week? Who said that? Was that Confucius? No. That was Jerry Neville, you guys. How about Jerry Neville? <laughs> Guy is smart, right? But this morning, we're going to shift our attention to a different kind of word that often comes out of our mouths. And this morning, we're going to talk about those unkind, unloving, unhelpful words that so often come out of our mouths. This morning, we're going to talk about the problem of criticism. And isn't it true that while criticism uh, seems so easy for us to see in others, it's so hard sometimes for us to see it in ourselves. And isn't it funny how the very thing that, that is frustrating to us about others, or sometimes even we may use language that we would say, man, we, do, we just hate that about somebody, that they're so critical, that that, that thing that we see in them, and, and we're so frustrated by it, we have so much grace for it in ourselves. Have you ever noticed that before? And it, it's because we often feel so justified in our criticism, because if they just weren't so weird, or they weren't so ignorant, or they weren't so out of touch, then I wouldn't have to criticize you. So it's really your fault, right? Because after all, we, we know the best way for everyone else to live their lives, don't we? And that's exactly what we communicate when we criticize someone, is I know how you should live your life. And if you don't live up to my standard or my plan for your life, I, it's my duty to let you know that. And so uh, I, I have every right to criticize you. I'm going to criticize the way you raise your kids. I'm going to criticize the way you dress. I'm going to criticize what you post on social media, how you drive, where you went on vacation, because you and I both know you couldn't afford that, right? You couldn't afford that trip. And we say these things, and these words come out of our mouths, and we criticize, and we criticize, and we criticize. And for some of us, this is just the way we talk. Like, it just has become normal for us, and we never even think about it. Well, this morning, I want you to think about it, okay? I want you to put your words on trial and to think about this. The words that come out of your mouth, are they constantly critical? And what I think you'll see is that critical words and a critical spirit have no room, have no place in the life of a believer. And Paul makes it very clear why this is so important. He said this in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. He starts by saying this, The entire law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the part that most of us know, right? That's, that's probably pretty familiar to us. 
Pentecost. Jesus said that. He was quoting the Old Testament. And uh, now Paul is reaffirming it here. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 15, but, but, if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So Paul says, love your neighbor, but... And then he tells us the opposite of loving our neighbor. And Paul says that the opposite of loving is biting and devouring each other. If your words are always harsh, if they are constantly critical, what does Paul say that does? He says it destroys the other person. And I am convinced that some of us have fallen into this pattern of biting and devouring and criticizing, and maybe we've done it for so long that we don't even recognize it as abnormal anymore. We don't even recognize the destruction that our words are causing. But what if your critical words are destroying the potential intimacy you could have in your marriage? What if your critical words are, are driving a wedge between you and your kids or, or kids? What if they're driving a wedge between you and your parents? Or what if your critical words are destroying the close, meaningful friendships that you might otherwise have? Or what about this one? What if your critical words are actually keeping you from sharing the gospel with other people because they see how you live and they see how critical you are and they think, man, if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I don't want that. Like, I don't need that in my life. Beware that your words don't destroy those around you. Now, I want you to hear what Solomon had to say about this. You guys know King Solomon, right? He was, he was the wisest man on planet Earth. Uh, people came from all over to hear him. Kings and queens saw audience with him because they wanted to hear his great words of wisdom. What did he say about this? Well, listen, Proverbs 12, 18 says this. It says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, both of my grandfathers served in World War II. Okay, I've told you before about my grandpa Jones. That's my grandpa on my mom's side. Lives up in Michigan City. Some of you will remember I told you he served in the Navy during World War II. He was in the South Pacific in the midst of battle when he gave his heart to, to Christ. Uh, I told you that story, I think, last, last fall. I've never told you about my grandpa Krauss, though, who was also in World War II, and he actually had boots on the ground in Japan during the war. And my grandpa Krauss brought something back from the war uh, that was very interesting to me. In fact, when I was a young kid, it was the thing that when we were going to grandma and grandpa's house, this was immediately what I thought of. And I, and I, I wanted to, to go, I wanted to see it, I wanted to hold it, and I brought it with me today. I'll show you what it is. Some of you already know because uh, I taught at Legacy Christian School one time and I had to get permission to bring this with me. But uh, this is a World War II Japanese infantryman's sword. This isn't decoration. Uh, this is the real deal. A Japanese soldier would have worn this right here on his side during the war. And uh, it is as sharp today as it was the, the, the day that a Japanese soldier carried it. And I remember as a young child being at my grandma and grandpa's house, and for whatever reason, I was climbing around in my grandpa's closet, just rummaging around, looking at whatever was in there. And I found this, and I pulled it out of the sheath, and I thought, my goodness, my grandpa is a ninja. <laughs> and... Uh, 
I loved my grandpa so much that day. And from that day forward, um, I would get this out of his closet every single time we would go to their house. And I can remember I would stand, as as just a very young child, I'd stand in front of uh, his full-length mirror, and I'd, I'd draw this thing out of the sheath, and I'd stand there in front of the mirror, and I'd pretend like I was Lion-O from the Thundercats, right? <laughs> With my sword in hand, ready to fight Mumra, uh, take him on. But uh, this thing was just so... So cool to me. I just always wanted to get it out and, and, and to look at it. And so when my grandpa died, my grandma gave this to me. It's kind of something to remember my grandpa by. But quite honestly, she gave it to me when I was still way too young because I had a recliner in my bedroom, and uh, I would run that thing through with this sword, like, on a regular occasion. I was a fairly aggressive child. Uh, <laughs> And my mom and dad figured out, figured out pretty quickly what was going on and, and told me to cut it out. But, uh, but this sword, I mean, it, it was made for one purpose. I mean, this sword was made to, to cut and, and to stab and to pierce. In fact, if you look at the way this is constructed, it may be hard for you to see, uh, but you're welcome to come and look at it after the service. The point is what's really impressive because it's ground in such a way that this would just so easily slide into whatever it comes up against. It's made, I think, specifically as a, as a, a weapon to use it in, in this way, to stab and to pierce. And this is what King Solomon says that the words of the reckless are like. He says the words of the reckless pierce like a sword. But then he goes on to say that the words of the wise bring healing. And so I wonder, I, I didn't see exactly where he sat. Is Curtis Wiltsy still in here or did he leave? He, that is way too bad. I wanted to give him a hard time this morning. Randy, will you come up here with me? I always have a backup. So my buddy Randy Graham, everybody give him a hand. Come up here for a second. Randy, you, you and I know each other. You come up, come up here on the stage with me. And uh, you and I know each other, maybe not super well, but pretty well. I mean, we've, we've interacted quite a bit. And so uh, I bet because of your background, you know what this is, don't you? Yeah, it's a It's a def- Yes, thank you for saying that because defibrillator is really hard for me to say. So we're going to call this an AED. What do you do with this? Use it on someone who's had a heart attack. Uh, it assesses the situation. Yep. And if need be, it will give a shock to try to restart your heart. That's right. So this is, this is the kind of thing that you see in the movies when someone is laid out on a gurney, their heart has stopped beating, and, and typically what you see in the movies is the doctor will take the two paddles, rub them together, clear, and then he'll hit somebody and they're like, Ugh, up off the table, right? And it gives such a jolt that it can, it can shock a heart back into beating. And so I want to try something. Randy, take your shirt off real quick. <laughs> Just uh, if you could take your shirt, just go ahead. I need you to wipe off real good. I, you're not going to do it? No, not at all. <laughs> Randy, you're ruining my illustration, man. Thanks for helping me out. You can go have a seat. When I bought one of these for each of our campuses about a year ago. Uh, so if you ever want to feel what one is like, just pretend to have a heart attack in the lobby, and we would love to use this on you. But the reality is... Uh, Kyle Howe, one of your very own, he came, a Carmel firefighter came and trained our staff on how to use this, on what to do if something would happen on a Sunday morning. And the truth of the matter is, this is a, this is a really important tool in the midst of a medical emergency. I mean, in the proper hands and somebody who can follow the instructions and go through the procedure, this can bring a heart that has stopped beating back alive. I mean, it can, it can shock somebody's heart back 
to life. And Solomon says that the words of the wise bring healing. It's, it's like what this thing does. It, it, the wise person assesses the situation, sees the trauma that has happened, and they use their words to bring healing, much like this AED would. And so Solomon says that the reckless, their words cut, their words pierce, their words destroy, but the words of the wise bring healing. And so I just want to ask you this morning, when you think about those two analogies, which one would better describe your words? Do you use reckless words that pierce and destroy? Or do you use words that bring healing? Words like an AED. And so what I hope you'll see this morning is that very specifically for followers of Jesus Christ, those of us who, who would wear the name of Christ and call ourselves Christians, um, we really are not given an option about this. This isn't just a suggestion, but there is a very specific kind of word that we are to be drawn to and to use. I want you to see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Don't let any of it come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't let any impure, unwholesome, critical words come out of your mouth. Don't tear people down. Don't, don't let that be a part of your language. Why? Because it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. And some of you here today know firsthand how a single word of criticism can cut your heart and stay with you for the rest of your life. I counseled with, with a woman uh, several years ago. She was in her late 60s. And she still was feeling the effects of some critical words spoken to her by her mother when she was a very young child. And even though her mom had passed years earlier, this woman was still dealing with the after effects of some very unwholesome, critical words spoken to her. And she could recite back to me word for word what her mom had said to her 50 years ago. 50 years ago, they had pierced her heart like a sword. That's the kind of negative impact our words can have. And yet so often we let these things roll off of our tongue like it's no big deal. And we leave a wake of destruction in our path. But here's the thing. That's why Paul instructs us not to let any unwholesome words come out of our mouth. But, but only what's helpful for building each other's up because that's what's beneficial for those who listen. And while that one single critical word may cause years of destruction, the opposite is also true. One word of encouragement can bring hope and it can bring healing to those who listen. And so it wasn't very long ago um, that I was on the receiving end of some very uh, hurtful criticism. And I'm going to tell you this story not because... I desire sympathy or because I'm still in the, the place of feeling wounded. Um, I want to tell you this story so I can tell you what happened afterwards. But there was a relationship in my life that was strained, to say the least. And I felt very convicted by the Lord that as far as it depended on me, I needed to live at peace with this person. And so I prayed about it. I felt very clearly from the Lord that I was to, to make a move toward this person. I invited him to, to grab coffee with me just so that we could talk and clear the air and have some some reconciliation in our relationship. And I tell you, with all honesty and integrity, um, I took time to search my heart. What is my part in this? And, and to approach this as humbly as I possibly could. I only had healing and reconciliation in mind, but the other person did not. The other person did not. They had a different agenda. And he saw this as an opportunity to attack and to destroy. 
And he questioned my character, and he questioned my ministry, and he essentially told me that I was a worthless pastor and a worthless person. And I very quickly realized, I shouldn't say very quickly, I sat and listened to, to what he said for quite a while. And when I deemed that this was going nowhere good, that this wasn't going to end well, I simply let him know that my intent was for us to build our relationship. This was only causing to divide it more and that I was going to excuse myself. And so I left, and I left him sitting there in the restaurant. And uh, I'll tell you guys this morning, um, it is not easy to unhinge me. At least I don't want you to think it's easy to unhinge me. But this guy did it. And, uh, and he, he took the legs out from under me, quite honestly. And so as I headed back to the office and I pulled into the church parking lot, there was my friend Paul, uh, Pastor Paul, and he was getting out of his car, and he could see that I was upset. He knew about this situation, and he hopped in my truck, and we took a ride. And I explained to him what had, what had unfolded and, and how the conversation went. And, uh, and Paul, if you know him at all, did what Paul does. And he very quickly got out his AED and he went to work on me, and he started speaking words of life, and words of wisdom, and words of truth, and words of healing. And while one reckless word of criticism can cause years of, of devastation and destruction, you may never know how just one word of encouragement may bring somebody back on track, may, may bring someone back to a place where they have faith, and they have hope, and, uh, and they have that life again. The person I met, me, met with, he was reckless. He was a life taker, but my friend Paul was a life giver. And our words have the power of life and they have the power of death. So I'm just telling you today, don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. I want to give you two options this morning for the way that you can use your words. These are on your notes page if you want to write them down. But option number one is this, you can be a fault finder. You can be a fault finder, and this, quite honestly, is what I believe most people are, not because I'm, I'm negative or have a pessimistic outlook uh, on the world or on people, but simply because if you don't put any effort into this area of criticism, this is most likely where you're going to land. It's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest of the two options just to be a, a fault finder. Because in our sin nature, our default seems to be to look for and to highlight what is wrong with everyone else. We see this in, in all kinds of different relationships. I see it in marriages all the time. It's so easy to be a fault finder with your spouse and to say things like, I can't believe you forgot to take the trash out again. I mean, how, how hard is it to take the trash out? Or why did you make this for dinner? You know what? I don't like this. This isn't what I like to eat. Or why do you always have to leave your clothes laying everywhere? You're such a slob. Or I don't like the, I don't like the way you talk. I don't like the way you snore. I don't like the way you breathe. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I got to breathe, right? Or maybe this plays out at work. And I don't like the way he runs the meetings. I don't like the way that, that, that she talks or her voice is so annoying or he has the stupidest ideas. This is never going to work or possibly in your friendships. You know, can, can you believe their kids? I mean, their kids are awful. You might as well put them in jail right now because those kids are going nowhere good, right? Or the way they drive, if they're going to drive like that, they need to take the Genesis sticker off of their car. They need, to, they need to put a Northview sticker on there because that's how Northview people drive, right? That's not how Genesis people drive. And it's so easy to be a fault finder, isn't it? Like those words can just come out so quickly and so easily. But why do we do that? Well, I think a, a few reasons probably. I, I think first and foremost, it has a lot to do with pride. 
And so uh, this pride that, that lives inside of all of us, it, it wants to rise up. It wants to speak out. And we think we know what's best. And so we criticize when they don't do what we think they should do. And it's really just a reflection of our own pride, isn't it? Or sometimes I, I think this has to do uh, with the, the fact that we're insecure. And all of us have different insecurities. And so other than letting people see what it is that maybe we're insecure about, we, we highlight that in somebody else. And we do whatever we have to do to get the spotlight off of us and onto someone else. And so we criticize, man, look at that. Look at what they're doing. And all the while, you know, we're doing the same thing. Or sometimes we criticize just because we're uninformed. And so we do it from a distance about things that we really know nothing about. We throw those darts from a distance. Those of you who don't have kids or or maybe uh, you have, have kids, but it's been a while since you had really young kids. I want you to think about the last time you went to the grocery store and you saw a mom with a two-year-old who is melting down. It's a horrible sight, isn't it? I mean, it just is awful. But if you were being very honest in that moment, was there anything inside of you that thought, she needs to get that kid under control, right? Like, she might not be the best mom if, if her kids act like that. Well, here's the deal. We, we do that sometimes without knowing what it's like to have a two-year-old melting down in the grocery store because that's exactly what I used to think. And then all of a sudden, it was my two-year-old melting down in the grocery store, right? And what you learn in that situation is you cannot negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> you can't. You cannot do it. You do not give in to their demands. You push through, you do what you've got to do, okay? I didn't know that until it was my kid melting down. So don't judge from a distance. You see, when we criticize others, we have this tendency to think that, that it makes us look smarter. It makes it look like we've got it all together. We know what we're doing. That's what we think people are thinking about us, but that's not true. It doesn't make you look smart. It makes you look mean. It makes you look insecure. It makes you look prideful. And we need to stop because it makes us look very much like someone in Scripture, but it's not a good thing. Do you know who the biggest fault finder in Scripture is? It's the devil. His name is Satan. And one of the names that's given to him is the accuser of the brothers, okay, or the more, more recent translations, the accuser of the brothers and the sisters, because that's what he does. He finds fault. He finds fault, and he accuses us before God day and night, and night and day. That's all he does. And when we find fault, when we live as fault finders, we are aligning ourselves with the enemy of our souls, and we are acting the way that he acts. But we don't have to live that way. There is another option, and option number two is to be a hope dealer, a hope dealer. If you think about this in terms of what it is that followers of Jesus have to offer the world, our commodity is hope. We deal in hope, okay? In fact, this should be the natural overflow of our relationship with God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 15, 13. He starts by saying, may the God of hope... Who is he? Who is our God? He is the God of hope. That's who he is. And Paul says, may he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer and Paul's desire for believers, for followers of Jesus, was that we would know the God of hope and that through trusting him, that, that this hope would 
would fill up inside of us to the point that it would overflow, that we could not contain it, and our words would be so full of hope that they would spread hope to everyone who would hear them. Do you want to be a fault finder, or do you want to be a hope dealer? The devil is a fault finder, but 1 Timothy calls Jesus our hope. Titus 2 calls Jesus the blessed hope. 1 Peter calls Jesus the living hope. And in the Gospels, do you know what we find? We find that, that whenever someone would sin and the Pharisees would see this happen, they were very quick to accuse and to find fault in that person, to highlight their sin. And that makes sense because Jesus pointed out in Matthew 23 that the, the Pharisees were children of hell. That's how he referred to them. You are children of hell. It's kind of strong language. And in John 8, he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. And so he points out, your, your dad is the devil. The way you're acting right now, you're acting like your father, the devil. And, and so it makes sense that the Pharisees would accuse because that's what the devil does. He's the accuser. He's a fault finder, but not Jesus. Jesus was a hope dealer. And this doesn't mean that he was soft on sin. He wasn't. He always called sin what it was, but he never left the sinner without hope. Think about the story of the woman who is caught in adultery. If you don't know that story, John records it in his gospel in chapter 8. Uh, but the Pharisees, they bring this woman who is caught in the act of adultery before Jesus, and they wanted Jesus's approval to kill her, to stone her specifically. They wanted to throw rocks at her until she died. And they were trying to trap Jesus to get him to say, yes, the, the law says you can do this. And they were doing it at the expense of this woman's dignity and humanity and her self-worth. But Jesus turns the tables on these fault-finding Pharisees, these sons of the devil. And he says to them, whichever of you is without sin, you get to throw the first stone. And then Jesus just knelt down and he started writing something in the dirt. Now, the Gospels don't tell us what Jesus was writing, but many people have speculated that it was something like the Ten Commandments, or maybe even more specifically, some of the sins that the Pharisees had committed. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is whatever he wrote and the words that he spoke, the Pharisees began dropping their rocks and walking away. And then Jesus looked at this woman who she had to be terrified in that moment. She's full of shame. She's been called out as an adulterous woman. And uh, Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Where are all the fault finders? And she, she looks up and, and she looks around. I mean, the last thing she knew, rocks were going to be thrown at her head. And now she's looking around and it's just her and Jesus. They've all left. And she says to Jesus, they're They're gone. They all walked away, and Jesus said, Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's incredible, isn't it? How Jesus was always full of grace and truth, never soft on sin, but always offering hope. And if you and I are going to walk as Jesus walked, that has to be true of us as well. We have to figure out how to, how to walk that line and how to be full of grace and truth. The Pharisees were fault finders. The devil is a fault finder. Jesus was a hope dealer. He is the living hope. He is the blessed hope. He is our only hope, and he has called us to overflow with hope, using our words not to criticize and destroy, but to heal and to benefit all who would listen. So on a very practical level, 
What might this look like even today? As you leave this place, you will be tempted to criticize. You'll be tempted to criticize as you drive. You'll be tempted to criticize as you eat. You'll be tempted to criticize throughout the day in a number of different ways. So how could this possibly change for the better? Well, let me suggest just a few things. Perhaps your kid is not the neatest kid in the world. Perhaps it looks like a grenade was thrown into their room and things just landed where they would. And that for you as a parent, maybe that's frustrating for you. And I get that. My kid, I've got messy kids too. And sometimes that's frustrating because you just want a clean house, right? But instead of focusing in on that and criticizing them because of their mess, find something you can highlight that's good. I mean, I bet your kid's got a big heart. My kids have big hearts. Tell them, I, I love your heart. I love the way you love people. I love the way you care about people. And, uh, and I just want you to know I love you. And I want you to think about how much I love you while you go clean your room. Okay? <laughs> so, like, there's a way to still get it done, right? Or your roommate. Your roommate may eat all your food and wear all your clothes. That's, that's what roommates do. And they don't do the dishes and they, they never do the laundry. But, and, and so that's frustrating. I get it. But, but maybe they're a great friend to you. And so, you know, it's those words of, I love you so much. Thank you for being such a great friend to me. Thank you for sticking with me no matter what. Words of life, build them up. Or your husband, he may not be the best at fixing things, but he's a great dad. Don't pick him apart for what he's not. Lift him up. Build him up for what he is. I love the way you love our kids. Words of life, words of healing, build that person up. Husbands, your wife may not be the best cook, but when she takes time and energy to make you a meal, you tell her you appreciate that. Honey, I'm so thankful. I come home from work, and I don't have to figure out what we're going to do for dinner. Thank you you for doing that for me tonight. Words of life, encouraging words, build her up. It's time for us to break these sinful patterns of criticism that so many of us have given into and to replace those critical words with words of hope and words of healing. I want to be a part of a church that is full of hope dealers, and I am the chief critic of them all. I just confess that to you. Sometimes when I write a message, I'm pretty sure it's for you, or at least I want to pretend it's for you or, or hope that it's helpful to you in some way. I just need you to know this one is for me, okay? And maybe you're helped by it too, but this one is not for you. This one is for me because it, it comes out of my mouth so easily too. And so I want to ask you to join me in something. Um, when you came in, did you get a, a card that says my big fat resolution on it? You should have one of those. If you don't, we're going to put this on the screen, and there are extras of them out in the lobby, and you're welcome to grab one on your way out. But I came up with this this week just as a way for us to draw a line in the sand, those of us who, who really want to and really mean it, and we recognize that this is not the way God wants us to use our tongues. This is not the way that we are to use our words, um, that we could have something that we could cling to, that we could point back to to say, that was the point. That was the point where I recognized I need to speak differently. And so I'm asking you to join me in this. I wrote this for me. You're welcome to use it too. I would love it if you did. But here's what I want to do. I want to read this for you first. Maybe you've already read it on your card, but I just, I want you to know what you're committing to if you join me in this, because I don't want you to do this robotically. The worst thing you could do is read this with me and not mean it. That's called lying, okay? And so if you're not ready to say, yeah, I want to do differently, please don't read this with me. 
you're not going to offend me. Um, you will offend God, okay, if you read this and you don't mean it. But here's, here's what it is. My big fat resolution. I resolve to not let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. I resolve only to speak what is helpful and beneficial to those who listen. I resolve to speak words of healing and not destruction. And I resolve that when I fail, I will repent, I will seek forgiveness, and I will allow God by his grace to transform the words I speak. Okay, my big fat resolution. Now here's two things before I invite you to read this with me. Two things I want you to know. The first is this. This is not earning this is not about earning God's favor. Okay, saying these words is not go- what God wants you to do so that he can love you. All right, saying these words is what we do in response to God's love for us. There is nothing you can do to earn his favor. There's nothing you can do to earn his love. He already loves you as much as he possibly could. And so this could very easily turn into some kind of a works-based, I've got to do this, and if I don't, God won't love me, and if I fail, he, you know, it's not that. This is a response to God's love for us. God's love language is obedience. And he desires for his kids to to be obedient to the things that he has called us to. And so that's simply what we're doing, is we're trying to be obedient to what God has called us to do as a response to his great love for us. The second thing that I want you to know is that the last line of this resolution is possibly the most important. Because here's what I know is true about you and me. We're human. Every single one of us is still in this body of flesh and this body of death, and we are tempted to sin every single day. I am, you are, we all are. And so there will be moments when we are going to fail with our words. But the Bible is very clear what we are to do in those moments. It's 1 John chapter 1, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But not only that, but he will also cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And you guys, I'm not going to stand here and claim that I understand completely how this happens, but I am convinced that confession and repentance uh, go hand in hand with transformation and that these two things are not mutually exclusive. That is to say, transformation does not come without repentance and confession. I don't know how it all works. I just know that in my own life, that's what I've seen. When I am faithful to confess and to repent, then God works the work of transformation in my life and in my heart. And so this is a practice. This last piece of this resolution is something that we have to get into the practice of doing as the people of God. And so if I have shown you this morning why this is so very clear in Scripture, that our words are to be wholesome and helpful and beneficial. And if the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning that this is an area where you need some transformation, and if you are willing to take that step and to say these words with me and to resolve to strive to live differently, I'd like to invite you to stand with me right now and let's read these words together. Again, only if you mean it, but let's read this together. I resolve to not let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. I resolve only to speak what is helpful and beneficial to those who listen. I resolve to speak words of healing and not destruction. And I resolve that when I fail, I will repent, seek forgiveness, and allow God, by his grace, to transform the words I speak. 
And if you have committed to that this morning, I want you to do two other things. First, I want you to sign that resolution, and I want you to show it to someone, maybe a close friend, maybe a spouse. I want them them to know what you committed to today. And it has to be someone who knows you, someone who spends a good amount of time around you, and who is willing to tell you when you are veering off course and gently uh, point you back in the right direction. But let me give you one word of warning. You may need to ask forgiveness from that person before you ask for accountability because the people who we are closest to are usually the ones that get the brunt of our criticism the most. And so just be open to the fact that you may need to ask for forgiveness before you ask for accountability. The second thing I want you to do is this. I want you to put that card in a prominent place, maybe on your computer screen, maybe on a a window that you look out of, Uh, maybe take a picture of it with your phone and, and make it your desktop. But let this be a reminder to you over the course of the coming days and weeks that we are not to speak worthless, unwholesome words, but we are to let every word that comes out of our mouth be helpful and beneficial to everyone who would listen. Let me pray for us. Father God, I suspect that, uh, that it is the same for my brothers and sisters here today as it is for me, that we need to begin where this resolution ends, and that is at a place of repentance, recognizing that our words uh, have been wrong that we have acted wrongly in this area of criticism, allowing our words to be destructive and to be sinful. And Father, we are asking you for forgiveness for our careless, prideful, sinful words. Father, I pray that you would fill us with hope today to the point that we would overflow with hope and that the words would come out of our mouth would bring hope to everyone who would hear. Help us in this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving us when we fail and for transforming us more and more into the likeness of your Son. Father, it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.